Good afternoon and welcome to the 123rd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I talk about the issues surrounding COVID-19 vaccine with Emily Brunson and Monica Schock-Spana. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 9th, 2020, there are 27,628,190 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 27,424,421 cases yesterday. 6,334,158 of those are in the United States. That's up from 6,318,978 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 189,972 deaths reported in the United States, up from 189,456 reported yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And I'd like to continue that now, continuing our week of Labor Day discussions with the obituaries. Headline, public bus driver who felt Miami-Dade didn't care about transit workers dies of COVID-19. Amy Viteri and Andrea Torres contributed to this reporting on Local 10 Miami, July 10th. Lakeisha Snipes was so worried about being infected with the coronavirus that her, she decided to take a leave from her job as a public bus driver in March. The mother of two told her employer she had underlying health conditions, including high blood pressure, that put her at risk of dying of COVID-19. Snipes was safe at home until May when her employer asked her to return to work. Kim Cox, her cousin, said Snipes told her they bullied her into coming back to work. Snipes' worst fear came true. According to Miami-Dade Transit, her last drive was on June 25th and she reported she had tested positive for COVID-19 on June 29th. Snipes died in July, she was 42. It's a tragedy for our family, Cox said. Cox said COVID-19 killed Snipes. It's unclear how Snipes was infected. Miami-Dade County has had a shortage of contact tracers, the people who investigate outbreaks in the community. Although she was taking an unprecedented risk, Snipes did not have first responder discounts, hazard pay, or a death benefit for her kids. Cox said Snipes told her she felt like Miami-Dade County leaders weren't doing enough to protect her from COVID-19. She had been complaining for a long time that the bus system just doesn't care about the employees, Cox said. There are about 430,000 430, transit workers around the country. They're keeping public transportation systems running, but their employer's lack of investment in protections is causing them to pay the heavy price, according to the Transport Workers Union of America. Miami-Dade County increased the regularity of cleanings and made boarding changes so passengers are further away from the driver. Officials also required passengers to wear face masks, and started to provide drivers with face masks and hand sanitizer. Cox said Snipes wasn't appeased by the efforts. The Transit Workers Union believes more needs to be done. Some drivers want Miami-Dade to install more clear shielding to help drivers isolate from passengers. She was very worried about COVID-19 from day one. Everybody knows that if you have underlying conditions, you have weight problems, you stay out of harm's way, Cox said. African-American COVID-19 patients are dying at higher rates, in part because of Black people's heavier, heavier reliance on public transportation for commuting, two new studies by economists suggest, according to the Wall Street Journal. The NAACP has advocated for bus drivers around the country. In Miami-Dade County, more than 50% of trust, 
transit workers are African-American. Before the Black Lives Matter movement reignited, the union alleged in a federal civil rights lawsuit that Miami-Dade was discriminating against transit workers. The county's firefighters, police officers, and other frontline workers have earned and deserve the protections the employer is giving them throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, the complainant wrote. Transit employee work group is deserving of the same protections. Jeffrey Mitchell is the president of TWU's Local 291, which represents about 2,800 Miami-Dade County transportation employees. He filed another lawsuit earlier this year in Miami-Dade Circuit Court against Miami-Dade County Transportation and Public Works Director Alice Bravo. Mitchell rented moving billboards to promote the TWU's Ride Not Die campaign to raise awareness and pressure Bravo. He fears more transit workers will die and spread the disease as Miami-Dade's cases continue to increase. He released a statement. Currently, we have dozens of transportation workers who have tested positive for the virus and likely more that have not yet been identified, Mitchell said. Second headline, Joe Hansen, New Jersey transit train conductor, died from complications related to COVID-19. This appeared in New Jersey Advanced Media and NJ.com by Chris Sheldon, April 8th. A longtime train conductor became the first New Jersey transit employee to die from complications related to COVID-19, the disease caused by the coronavirus the transportation system announced in April. Joe Hansen was a veteran conductor with more than 20 years of service and most recently worked on the Raritan Valley Line, officials said. Today, we mourn the loss of one of our own. Joe Hansen was the first member of the NJ Transit family to lose their battle with this invisible enemy, NJ Transit President and CEO Kevin Corbett said in a statement. Joe served our customers as a train conductor, most recently working on our Raritan Valley Line for more than 20 years, and we are grateful for his service, Corbett continued. Everyone at NJ Transit is simply devastated by this tragic and untimely loss. NJ Transit spokeswoman Nancy Snyder said that 87 of its 12,000 employees had tested positive for COVID-19. This is as of early April. 57 of those employees at that time were considered frontline employees. A commuter, Martha Luxinger, posted about Hansen on a Facebook commuter group and said she had fond memories of him. Those of you who commuted on the RV may have known Joe. Very sad loss, she said. He was a great person and very professional. Okay, let's turn to our discussion for today. And I'm gonna introduce my guests. And Monica, please correct me if I'm pronouncing your last name incorrectly. Shock Spana? That's Is that perfect. the right? That's, That's perfect, good. Scott. That's Thank great. Thank you. Dr. Monica Shockspana is a medical anthropologist, a senior scholar with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and a senior scientist in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. She also holds faculty positions at the Department of Anthropology at Texas State University and the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism. Her national advisory roles include currently serving on the Homeland Security Subcommittee of the Board of Scientific Counselors for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the Resilient America Roundtable of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and for the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. She serves on the Standing Committee on Medical and Public Health Research during large-scale emergency events. From 2003, to 2017, Dr. Shock Spana worked at the UPMC Center for Health Security. And prior to that, she worked at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies, starting in 1998. My second guest is Emily Brunson, an applied anthropologist specializing in medical anthropology. She received an MPH in epidemiology and a PhD in anthropology from the University of Washington in Seattle. Her primary research focus is healthcare access and decision-making, and particularly how policies, social structures, including class and racial inequality, social networks, and personal experience combine to produce health outcomes for individuals. Currently, she's developing research plans and conducting policy outreach in relation to COVID-19 vaccination, working on a study of COVID-19 vaccination knowledge, attitudes, and behavior among college students 
and she is located at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. Emily and Monica, thank you so much for making time to come on COVID Calls today. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out um, where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is there today. Anything you can tell us about it. Emily, can I start with you? Sure. Um, I'm just outside of Austin, Texas at the moment. Um, it's been raining all day, so now we're in a, a flash flood warning. So if, if the rain comes and there's lightning and thunder, that's why um, on the call. Um, currently, Texas is, is struggling um, with coronavirus. Um, I, I teach at Texas State University, as you mentioned, and Hayes County, where the university is located, is one of the hardest hit counties in the country. Um, especially among the, the county population, minus the, the university is, is relatively poor um, and, and largely Hispanic. And so the, the rates of COVID-19 locally um, and, and the death rates associated with COVID-19 have been quite high. Um, school just started, so we are going to see how that works or, or doesn't work. Was there much discussion in the lead up to the start of the semester about that interaction between the student population and the the broader community. I know in Philadelphia, the various universities here, that was a discussion from the beginning. I'm not sure that satisfactory answer was ever reached, but has that been part of the dialogue there? Um, a bit. I'm not privy to to all the conversations going on, but definitely uh, there were news reports and around the community there, there have been discussions. Monica, let's turn to you. Where are you calling from and how's it looking there? Well, actually, I'm just north of of Emily. I'm actually I'm in Austin, um, and I, I think Emily's characterization um, captured what's happening uh, around here. Things are a, a little bit less affected in Austin, um, just given the nature of demographics and access to to care and the like. Oh, I almost my whole family is is there in Travis County or Bayer County. So it's hearing from you both is making me feel better just to get voices from Texas, but also it's making me not feel as good as I would like to considering those reports. And I'm also disturbed, frankly, that they've gone back into the classrooms given the situation that you described, Emily, it's very distressing. So, um, well, thank you both for making time to talk today. And I just wanna start, I mean, you both have uh, wide-ranging research interests, and we're going to talk about vaccines, among other things, today. Monica, though, can I start with you and just get a, a broader sense of your career sure. bringing you to this moment and maybe reflect a little bit on knowledge that you find yourself pulling from now, maybe that you didn't expect to. It's always interesting when people have been working on disaster for a while, and then they're in the midst of something like this, what they're using. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I trained as a cultural anthropologist and came to <clears throat> public health emergency management um, by way of the nuclear weapons complex, we'll put it that way. Uh, so my doctoral work in the 90s was about <clears throat> transition from uh, production of nuclear weapons to cleanup of the mess. But I did a lot of applied anthropology um, during the HIV AIDS pandemic in those years and learned a lot about uh, public health practice and, and, and immunology and infectious diseases. And when the Center for Civilian Biodefense Studies stood up in 98, it caught my eye mostly from an ethnographic point of view, you know, what was going on in national security circles that they were now worried about bioweapons. Um, so, but just to sort of bookend the conversation uh, with the early days and where we are now, um, I wrote a paper in the late 90s about what lessons could be gleaned from the 1918 influenza pandemic in terms of uh, social, cultural, and political elements that planners should take uh, into consideration. Um, I, I read everything that the Baltimore City uh, newspapers wrote and also the Afro-American, which was a newspaper that served the, um, the black communities of, of Baltimore. 
And so what's amazing is now uh, I've been asked many, many questions from a variety of journalists. Um, can you compare 1918 to today? Um, it was, that was an archival dive for me. I mean, Scott, I know you're a historian. That was an archival dive for me um, and, and very distant to me, both in time and personal experience. So um, to now be amid, in the middle of a protracted uh, pandemic, um, is is really something and so uh it it's you know the real experience of living through it um is different from researching it um uh also the, the difference between scholarship and operations and response um our, our center has uh for a number of reasons taken on certain response functions uh given uh, the way the uh, federal government is running these days. So um, it's, it, it is increasingly less abstract and more real, both professionally and, and uh, personally. Stay with that 1918 example for a second, and particularly as an anthropologist, um, I know you're trained in not waiting until something is over to try to make sense of it culturally. You're, you try to make help us understand how people interpret the reality that they're in. Have you found that 1918 case speaking to you at this time in ways you wouldn't have expected? And, and I asked that because I've had yeah. several guests who talked about 1918. I had John Barry on. Oh, great. And he quoted from memory a letter that he had read that still impacted him today as he was thinking about that event, but also thinking about this event. And I, just, I wondered how it's sort of talking to you. Yeah. Well, one thing um, that struck me then and uh, about that event and then is striking today is about the numbers, the case counting uh, and, and the death rates. And during 1918, there was a steady drumbeat, steady drumbeat in the news reports about numbers of cases and deaths and people trying to interpret what was going on, uh, how bad were things, were responses working? Um, and, uh, and there was this attempt to impose order through this numerology, so to speak. Um, and uh, I find that um, focus on the numbers, not to detract from how they do represent real human suffering and loss of life. I don't want to minimize that. But how the how humans try to um, make sense of order, control, um, uh, what is going on around them by uh, using numbers. Um, we now have incredible modeling uh, technologies and approaches that weren't there in 1918. Um, but I think uh, modeling has played very important symbolic and political roles uh, during 2020 uh, in a way that mm. they also, the, num the numbers functioned in 1918. And uh, it, it is about creating order amidst uh, uh, seeming chaos um, and trying to impose human will, uh, if only through measurement, on um, a, a very tragic uh, experience. Thank you for that reflection. I, just one other thing I wanted to pick up on what you said in your introductory comments there about the nuclear. Um, it's been on my mind and lots of other people, I think, as well, that something about the pandemic, maybe pandemics generally, but the way this one's playing out with so many scientific uncertainties, 
that there are maybe unexpected parallels to the way people have coped with radiation exposure over mm -hmm. time too. And I, I don't know if you've had time even to think about that or connect that to your earlier mm -hmm. work, but I think that background that you have with nuclear cleanup is a really important one to enable certain kinds of thinking about this pandemic. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, you know, sort of the, the old psychometric models about um, what uh, elicits dread, um, things that are invisible, things that uh, are beyond human control, or things that have, at least as it relates to the response, um, uh, when a human hand, uh, if people perceive that either through negligence or, del or deliberate action, something has happened. So there's that dread aspect. I think I haven't really made the connection before, but that's, uh, I'm going to think about that um, more through the evening. Um, but um, how in a context of dread, um, people try to take uh, measures um, that again, uh, demonstrate uh, more control, um, you know. And so in the early days of the pandemic, so to speak, um, the desire to stockpile, uh, I think, was part of that need to take human scale action um, and feel a sense that one could do something um, uh, mm. to protect oneself. Mm -hmm. So, but. Well, the stockpiling, another connection to the nuclear era I hadn't even thought of. Emily, um, but same question to you, sort of, if, if you wouldn't mind, sort of catch us up a little bit on your work and how how it sort of delivers you to this COVID era. You know, what kind of things have you, what questions have been persistent for you coming into this time? Well, I think, and just to pick up off of what Monica was saying, um, this seems like a surreal experience because, you know, in, in my work in, in different ways, you know, what would happen if has been, has played a big piece um, in terms of looking at, at vaccine uptake and with parents with children, um, looking at healthcare access and, and other projects I've worked on. And so, you know, being in the middle of this is, is something entirely different. And it, it's one thing to think about those things academically and another thing to be experiencing them and at the same time trying to do research and trying to, to affect change and, and do things. So it's, it's just such an interesting, um, and not necessarily in a positive way, um, experience. And, um, you know, for my own research, like this has brought so many things to the fore, that looking at vaccination and some long term trends about vaccination that have been happening across the country, really, for the last two decades in the US. Um, and, you know, in, in light of a pandemic situation, again, so we're seeing some repeats of what happened with 2009, 2010 H1N1 um, and vaccination. But then in terms of, of healthcare access and existing inequalities um, on, on racial and class lines and, and how the, the current situation is really putting people who are already in, in bad situations in an even worse um, and, and more risky situations. So it's, it's sort of, been interesting combining so many different um, aspects of, of my work in that way. But at the same time, I would love for this to be over tomorrow. That, it, that That's a sense of the uncanny. And so many people I've talked to in the COVID calls have, you, you have really said it in a, in a crystallized way, I think, that you would, of course, we want it to be over. But it's a weird moment when your research catches up with your reality. Um, and, and in fact, I had a discussion, this is a little off the script, but I, I just, it, I had a discussion on Twitter just a few days ago with someone who I respect a great deal, but she said, you know, something, I had put something out on Twitter and she said, she said, it sounds like you're doing an analysis that comes from a person who's never lived through a disaster. And I really, I still am sort of grappling with that observation, but it's something about the way we have tended to think about disasters as there are clear divisions between victims and non-victims, people who've had the experience and people who haven't. And COVID-19 blurs those lines in all sorts of unexpected ways. And what I wanted to say to her was, well, I'm living through this same reality that you are. But of course, I didn't say that because I don't know what reality she's living through, number one. 
and I haven't had it. And, and so we have these many different, this, this full spectrum of experience right now, which isn't as clear cut as if someone's home is burned down in a wildfire or they're forced out in a flood. Emily, let me stay with you and bring us into the discussion about vaccination. You and Monica are part of a working group as part of an NSF funded Converge um, project, which is connected with University of Colorado Boulder. And you're looking at vaccines. And one of the things that you're looking at is, you pointed out, is that um, a recent national poll suggests, the Gallup News poll suggested that 35% of Americans would decline a coronavirus vaccine, even if it were free and FDA approved. So I guess we've got to get in to this. We've got a operation warp speed. It's even, it's got like a military designation, I guess, to call something operation. Um, maybe you can contextualize that for us a little bit, but let's just start with the reality of those numbers. 35% of people wouldn't take the vaccine, even if it was free. What do you make of that? So, and, and this happened once again with, with H1N1. It, it's been happening with childhood vaccination that it's not as simple of a solution of having the vaccine technology available. That, you know, and, and there's sort of a, I think sometimes a disconnect, um, especially at, at policy levels and when we're doing public health planning to think, and, and even on interpersonal levels that, you know, if we get a vaccine, this will, this will be the end, we can fix everything and go back to normal, whatever, whatever that's going to be now. Um, but I think that that's, that's sort of a naive presupposition that it's a lot more complicated than if we build it, people will come. We could end up in as the, that poll and, and other polls have shown with the perfect vaccine technology that was available tomorrow. And, and some people still would be hesitant about it. Some people would refuse to get it. Um, and so there are a bunch of different factors that, that go into why people might be feeling that way. Um, and, and honestly, if you were to talk to 10 different people, you would likely get 10 different answers. Um, but some, some common things that, that you'd hear um, in speaking with people, um, the idea of Operation Warp Speed, it sounds like something out of Star Trek um, or, or something with a military bend, but it's this idea of doing things quickly. Um, with H1N1, one of the, the major concerns with that vaccine um, that was cited repeatedly by, by people who refused to get that vaccine, even though it was a strange change for a flu, flu vaccine and had been fully tested. So we, we knew what the vaccine was, it was totally safe, you know, was that it had been done too fast and, and that it somehow wasn't going to be safer, that we didn't know how it would work. And so we're, we're seeing the same concerns um, coming up with, with COVID-19 vaccination. Um, and, and in a position where the, the vaccine is new um, and, and there are more concerns about it, it being rushed, you know, to fit political agendas or, or something else. And so there, that's, that's an issue. Um, you're looking at some issues of longstanding distrust among some communities um, where they feel that, you know, they, they can't trust the, the public health or medical establishment. Um, and they they can't trust the federal government, they can't trust the police, and and so there's there's a a lack of trust, and this is particularly with marginalized communities of color, that that is bleeding out and, and will affect people's um, interest in in vaccination, um, and then definitely the same polls are, are showing that trend as well that the the rates of of projected acceptance are are lower among communities of color. Um, so, and then you have some longstanding concerns about vaccination um, that range from what is referred to as the anti-vax movement. So absolutely against vaccination in all forms to, you know, parents who, who might be vaccinating their children and, and have questions and concerns. And this, this adds to those questions and concerns. And so we're, we're going to see all of this um, play out. Um, in addition to issues of access. So some people, they might be interested, but they think I'm never going to be able to afford that. Or I'm, you know, me getting to a clinic is not going to be possible. So it's this whole confluence of, of many different factors that are, that are, I think, leading to those poll numbers. 
Monica, Emily has put a lot on the table here. This is a really ambitious project you're engaged in. Did you want to pick up on any of that or underline any of those questions that she she brought to the fore there? Well, um, you mentioned our working group, uh, which we titled the Working Group on Readying, Readying Populations for COVID-19 Vaccine. And the reason why Emily and I uh, came together to stand up that working group was because we detected in the discourse around the vaccine that, as Emily pointed out, again, the focus was on a technical or technological fix, uh, right? We just need a clinically successful vaccine. Um, but as Emily pointed out, if it's not socially acceptable and it's not broadly available, then quite frankly, so what? Um, and so it struck me um, after, you know, after a couple of decades in the public health emergency management field that it was yet another indication that social behavioral and communication sciences uh, were taking a back seat to um, biomedical uh, uh, framings of solutions to outbreaks. Um, and so that's, that's why it uh, was um, of interest to me to get ahead of an issue where social and behavioral communication scientists, because we, we stood up that group in April, we were hoping to very quickly mobilize what was already known, some of the literature and findings that Emily was just um, articulating, is, is to mobilize that and get recommendations, empirically driven recommendations, into the hands of policymakers and practitioners um, that were uh, implicated in or going to soon be implicated in a COVID-19 vaccination campaign. So that's why we stood, stood up the working group and it included uh, a multidisciplinary uh, effort, most vaccinologists, social scientists, and also uh, folks from public health. So it was a really great brain trust um, and our, our report was released uh, at the beginning of July. So thank you for that context. And it's important to, to note here that, it, and this is an old discourse um, in emergency preparedness and disaster research about the sort of technological fix, as you said, and the biomedical fix, the machine or the pill, the, the medical intervention that will deal with whatever the reality is versus another approach which looks more at social determinants, historical determinants. Um, and the two, it, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Um, just right. because a person is attentive to social context doesn't mean they also, it doesn't mean you're going to refuse the vaccine. But I'm impressed with what you're both putting out there is that you saw early on that this rush to the vaccine as a techno fix was going to was going to be an important one. I want to stick with that and get a little more context if we can. Does that mean that the the broader goal that you would endorse is that that 35% number that the Gallup poll picked up on and I haven't seen how much polling there's been on that. But ideally that number should be a lot lower. I mean, is is that one of the sort of outcomes that we should be looking for or what's the right measure of success of bringing the social context more to the fore in this discussion? Monica, let me start with you on that and then Emily. Sure. Um, it, you know, as Emily was pointing out, uh, vaccine uptake is affected by uh, multiple uh, factors. Um, and so, I mean, I would step back and not focus so much on um you know, the rates at which people are saying they would be vaccinated or the rates at which they would actually be vaccinated. I think we need to step back and think from a systems perspective. How is it, can we build vaccination systems? And I, I'm going to speak to the United States context. Um, how can we build our vaccination systems in such a way that they elicit enhanced public trust um, in institutions, because it isn't just about the vaccine. Now, there are attributes of vaccines that do influence people's feelings about 
uh, whether they will take one or not. So there's a difference between say a flu vaccine and uh, a shingles vaccine, but I'll leave the vaccine uh, um, uh, uh, research in Emily's hands, um, given her own scholarship here. Um, but it, it's just, it's that systems level perspective that uh, why don't we put the end user of vaccination systems at the front of our planning around vaccinations? Mm -hmm. If we had done that with regard to pandemic uh, influenza, and it wasn't an operation warp speed, but we flipped it, right? And you, you took human design perspectives and um, went to the user to understand where vaccines and vaccinations fit into their worldviews, their personal identities, their social values, um, how it fits into the, the material circumstances um, uh, in which they are living their lives, uh, what relationship they have to authority, whether it's governmental authority or scientific authority. Um, and, and, and so it, I, I come at it that way. Mm -hmm. um, than these uptake um, uptake numbers. Uh, anyway, so I'll leave it at that. Just want to remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking with Monica Shock Spana and Emily Brunson about Operation Warp Speed and the broader discussion about COVID 19 and vaccines. Emily, just to, to bring it back to you, um, so thinking a little bit then about the divergent reasons that people might have as they make sense of whether or not they want this vaccine. Um, one thing I'm struck by in what you said, you, you said that there may be higher rates of resistance to it among underserved, traditionally underserved communities, communities of color. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Because that to me seems like the continuation of the way this disaster has already been over impacting communities of color, essential worker communities, African-American communities, indigenous communities. Can you talk a little bit about that piece of it? Yeah, um, and and like you said, these are these are populations that have been more heavily affected by COVID nineteen, and and there are some important structural reasons for why, um, and and a significant one would be a lack of of healthcare access in these communities, um, a, a lack of literally the U S has a, a health insurance based health system, so they they lack health insurance. Um, but then also access that you have populations that that don't have clinics that are accessible, um, either geographically um, or at the right times, um, days of the week or, or times of the day. And so it it, it becomes very complicated. But I, I think so. We're we're looking at two things. We're looking at at issues of trust, and and we're looking at at issues of access. And and so this is something that I think and and. To Monica's point, like looking at this in a system way with, with COVID-19 vaccination, there are things that can be done to improve the situation and that can really make a difference for public health writ large and vaccination writ large moving forward. And it, it can be done well um, or not. Um, but, but some things to look at that, that we can do and, and to think about um, in regards to trust, um, first of all. Um, going back to there have been longstanding um, issues of trust with certain communities, um, the Black community in particular, um, going back to incidents that happened like the Tuskegee syphilis study, um, where poor men in Alabama were not given penicillin um, to treat their syphilis, even though the, the drug was available and, and publicly available. So they, they weren't told about it. Um, and had then lived through having syphilis and, and infecting others during that time period. And so that and, and some other things have really undermined trust um, in, in medicine and public health that, um, 
among many blacks in the US today. And so, and, and combined there, there are other things that have happened with, with other groups as well. So, you know, what can we do to change trust? Um, and so there are a few things that, that we need to think about. Um, and, and those are really trying to understand where these communities are coming from, what their hopes and, and fears are, and then devising strategies to, um, that account for those racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and, and other measures to assure that the, the future COVID-19 vaccination program um, will be fair. Um, and, and that the, the protocol will be consistently applied, that these communities will be treated in the, in the same way as everyone else in the United States. Um, and, and that's going to be critical. And then when we think about access, you know, we also need to think about making vaccination accessible and, and perhaps in some out of the box ways. So instead of having everyone go to a doctor to get vaccinated, you know, what are, what are some places in, in local communities where people would feel safe and, and comfortable that are accessible? So, for example, having mass vaccination clinics at grocery stores or senior citizen centers or places of worship. Um, you know, that, that's going to be, to be key um, to, to reaching some members of these communities. And, and once again, to making this fair in an accessible way as well. So that um, access part is very well taken and thinking a bit more about the trust part. So you've sort of laid out a bit of a historical understanding and historians of medicine and public health have written a lot about this, why certain communities, particularly black and indigenous communities might have longstanding distrust with government and medicine and vaccination. So then, but is that a different sort of distrust than you find in the anti-vaccination movement? And I, I recognize it may be hard to characterize it as some sort of a unified movement. So you can correct me on that. But I'm wondering if that, when we talk about distrust, is it all kind of the same or does that emerge from a different place? Because when I think of the anti-vaccination movement, um, I'm picturing... I'm picturing something different from that. I'm picturing different communities. Yeah. Um, so for a large part, and, and this is once again generalizing for the, the anti-vax movement, um, it, it is coming from a different perspective. And, and I would say that, you know, it, it's a position of privilege in, in many ways that proportionately parents who are, are fully against vaccination, and, and this is different than having concerns, but you know, fully against vaccination, they, they tend to be white, they tend to be higher socioeconomic status, they tend to be highly educated, they tend to live in suburban areas. So in, in some of my past research and in, in speaking with, with people who fit into this category, um, I had a, a great conversation with um, a mom and she basically said, you know, we're not getting our son vaccinated at all. We, we don't want to risk that, you know, and if he does get sick, it's going to be no problem. We have great health insurance. I can take the time off and, and stay with him in the hospital if needed. And, and contrast that to, I was also talking at the same, around the same time to a mother um, who was living in a homeless shelter who had three children. And she talked about, you know, vaccination that if any of her kids were to get sick, it would literally ruin her life. Um, and, and ruin everything that she had been trying to put back together. And, and so I think, yeah, that when we, when we talk about this, that there's, there's concerns about trust, but, but the trust in who is different and where they're coming from is, is largely different, that when you're talking about marginalized communities, their lack of trust is, um, it, it encompasses their entire lives. So it's a lack of trust on, on every level. And it's a lack of trust that, you know, even biochemically, we're talking about, you know, this is stressful um, and, and some things that affect them in, in every way possible versus, you know, and, and the anti-vax movement where, and especially when we're talking about parents, um, which my research was in that, you know, having very specific concerns, but feeling safe in every other aspect of your life. Mm. And, and so that's, that's very, very different in terms of, you know, the, the issues with trust there. 
So just to stay with that, just a little bit more and the, the more middle class white communities, anti-vax communities that you're talking about, um, is autism the number one concern that's cited? I think that gets the most sort of mainstream media attention, but maybe you can give us a little bit more of a nuance on that. Yes, it gets a lot of media attention. Um, in my own work, to be honest with you, and, and speaking to parents who are hesitant or who are anti-vaccination, I've never had one of them have autism being their primary concern. Um, and, and many of them actually were absolutely convinced by the research that says there's no association between vaccination and autism. It was other concerns. And I think it really comes down to, once again, that privileged position of thinking, you know, in I, I recognize that infectious diseases exist, but are they likely to actually infect my child? Is my child likely to be exposed or you know, if they did, is there, there's some workaround that, that my child would still be okay. So, so it's more, it's more complicated in that way. Okay. Um, so I think we're working our way through these very, I can really see why you picked up this as a, as a converged group and why you needed more than one person to take on this issue. There's so many layers to it. Monica, the other piece where Emily started us off a little bit ago was uh, talking about the speed. And so that coincides with politics. This is an election year, 1976, uh, swine flu outbreak and the Ford administration also also got behind um, a rush to, I don't, I don't know if they gave it a military name, I can't remember, but um, you know, this rush to vac vaccinate and they, and that didn't turn out well for them. Um, and here we have history repeating itself in that sense. And President Trump has been very clear that he sees um, this, the success of this is assured, that all the best scientists and all the best companies are working on it. I'm not going to do a Trump impression, but you know that's the gist of it. And that the speed is essential and that that will be the mark of his great leadership to deliver that I think he said the other day, on a very important day, it will be delivered. And you know what day I'm talking about. And it, he was gave, doing this at a campaign rally. This is becoming part of his sump speech. How important is that? Sometimes in election year, things turn all funhouse and things that may not be as important. Um, we, they get an oversized amount of attention. But for people who are not as trusting of this vaccination, project? How much of it is that they just think, well, if Donald Trump's connected with it, how can I trust it? Yeah. Um, well, the the response to the pandemic um, uh, is being refracted through the prism of political ideology. So, uh, and uh, there's been rapid research to show that um, people's political ideas uh, and their uh, party affiliations is actually affecting uh, their risk perceptions uh, and also, uh, you know, their assessment of how well or how poorly uh, the government is doing in response to the containment or control management of, of coronavirus. Um, but that, that, fixation of our top executive on, on the vaccine is interesting. Um, I think, you know, from a historian's point of view, Charles Rosenberg wrote a, an essay several decades ago about the, 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 you know, epidemics being or outbreaks being a, a play that unfolds in certain acts. And there's the initial act of denial until um, sick bodies and, 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 and corpses start to pile up and then people have to recognize that there's a problem and then there's this rush, a sense of urgency to do something about it. Um, so I think there's that element to it. Um, people in political office feel that they need to exercise um, their agency and demonstrate their leadership by taking swift, definitive action. 
So there's that element. Then there's this technophilia element, right? The magic bullet. Um, and then there's the, uh, um, not to get, uh, I'm not a psychologist, but the sense that um, uh, uh, someone like the, uh, like President Trump identifies himself in a savior-like uh, position, that he's the one who's going to deliver on this. He's going to close the deal on the vaccine for all of us um, and, uh, and it, you know, take the credit for it. So there's, there's, a, there's a psychological element to it. There's a political element to it. There's a cultural element to it around the technophilia. So there's just multiple layers upon layers, I think with regard to um, uh, sort of the, uh, where this fits, uh, this rush to get us a vaccine. Um, let's, let's bring, while we're putting on layers of uncertainty, let's add another one. Um, and Monica, just to stay with you, the, just in the news yesterday, AstraZeneca said they're halting their uh, trials because someone, one person was made ill um, seriously ill in the trial. And in reading that story, I think it was in most, it was, the, I think I read the one in the Washington Post, but I stopped halfway through reading and I said, wow, I don't know as much about um, vaccine trials as I should. Um, how fast can they go? Can they be stopped with one person being made ill um, I guess a question to both of you, but Monica, to you first. I mean, it strikes me that's another area that you know, the, the FDA's role here, how big pharmaceutical companies work in this regard, also seems it, it's yet another area we should know much more about, it feels like, but we don't pay attention until we need it. And now we need it in April. And right. we're trying to catch up. So can, what, what do you think about that aspect of it? Well, I mean, we have to look at the role of uh, a regulation, a regulatory agency like the FDA in the context of a political uh, moment um, where there's been throughout this administration and through other uh, administrations, a desire to deregulate, to deregulate, to let markets freely do their, do their work. Um, and so there's that component to it. Um, in addition to uh, what we had talked about earlier about, you know, the rapidity with which um, vaccines uh, uh, want to be pushed, what for political expediency um, to rush, to rush out. Um, I think, and Emily can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it typically takes vaccine development typically takes 10, what a decade, Emily, like seven to 10 years. So th there is an element of expediency uh, um, and, you know, multiple, multiple vaccines being developed at the same time, major uh, resources, major financial resources and political will and in plain old hard work by scientists to get to get a vaccine, um, a safe and effective vaccine. Um, but we also have an agency under political pressure. Um, we've seen the FDA um, takes some mis uh, make some missteps, um, and uh, I, I'm afraid that. Um, individuals who would typically be willing to be vaccinated, even with a novel vaccine, are going to judge its, its integrity um, or not because of political, uh, because of political expedience. Not, not all the science behind the development, the, the, the fast development of a vaccine but the political expedience of it all. Emily, the, all of these different things we've been talking about have been characterized, uh, I think, by the World Health Organization and other organizations as an information epidemic, this infodemic 
um, so much coming at us. And even what Monica was just giving us there, sort of a, a encapsulated version of, of why a, even a, a reasonable person who wants a vaccine to work might think this FDA, I'm, I'm not sure it's under incredible political pressure and they're telling me something that usually takes seven years is now gonna take six months. So what, it, take us into your thinking a little bit about this infodemic idea. There's so much information swirling around out there. Is there a way through it? Again, I know your Converge work is, I believe you're, you're all solutions oriented. I mean, you wanna tee this up into information that can get uptake, I think, in scientific community and policy community. Is there, there's not a vaccine for the infodemic, but what are some of the ways through it? No, and it, it's complicated. And I think it, it's it's complicated by a few unique things that have, have cropped up recently and, and then associated with the pandemic that we have purposeful disinformation um, from other governments occurring. Um, and that, that's been happening around childhood vaccination now for a few years um, with, with Russian bots in particular stoking anti-vaccination um, fears in the U.S. Um, but also just with the pandemic that I mean, I, I have never spent so much time on my computer talking with other people, um, you know, and I, uh, so many people are, are saying, you know, they're using social media more than ever before. So we're, we're getting information from, you know, our, our friends and family and, and sometimes people that we're not no longer friends with, but they're still on our Facebook friends list, um, you know, and so we're, we're getting all of these different messages and, and, you know, and it sometimes I think it can be hard for people to tell them apart. And, and to to figure out you know what's what's true and and what's not, and so I think that this comes down to issues of of having some meaningful communication that that needs to be happening, um, and and definitely we've we've touched on already two technical pieces um, of of a COVID nineteen vaccine and, and vaccination program that just need to be very clear. Um, it would be ideal for this to be coming from the FDA. Um, but if it isn't, the, the pharmaceutical companies themselves might have to step in. And they, they sort of did today by, by declaring unilaterally that they would not be um, given to political pressure in terms of from their end um, in, in vaccine safety. But, you know, really understanding what the vaccines are like, um, what, they're, what they're likely to do. Um, like Monica said, we're looking at, at multiple vaccines being developed. Some of them might work great for some groups. Some of them might not really work for other groups. Some of them, you know, we might need to have two doses. Um, so there, there are going to be lots of, of different moving parts with that, that, that technically the public needs a better understanding of. And, and then the other aspect to that is safety, that we, we really need to be clear and transparent um, exactly what's being done to, to protect people. Um, because that is a, probably gonna be the, uh, one of the key ways to undermine COVID-19 vaccination is if people feel that it's somehow unsafe. Um, and, you know, and beyond those, those technical aspects, how can we counter this, this infodemic as, as you said? Um, I think it comes down to talking to people and, and providing messages that are meaningful to them, mm. which means understanding once again at, at some more nuanced levels, what are, what are people's specific concerns um, or hopes? Um, is it a hope, for example, that, you know, I, I can go back to church um, and, and I can, you know, resume having dinner with my friends you know, is the concern that I might be medically tested upon? Is it a concern that I'm not going to get access? So, so understanding those, um, and then once again, leveraging local communities and, and community spokespeople. So trusted voices that, that can speak to different audiences, because like you said, I mean, right now we're in such a politically fractured point in, in the U S in particular that, you know, Donald Trump is not capable of, getting in front of the country and having 100% of people believe what he says. Um, and frankly, if, if Joe Biden is elected in November and, and takes office in January, it will be the same thing. Um, perhaps not on the same level, but he's not going to be able to reach everyone. So we, we really need to think about who can be the messengers here. 
And it's going to need to be a lot of different people in, in a lot of different contexts. But we're really going to have to, in terms of messaging, you know, like we were in Access, meeting people where they're at um, to, to really overcome the, the infodemic that we're experiencing. It, it sounds to me, of course, then that that's going to be public health messaging campaigns that I suppose under ordinary circumstances, we would hope there would be guidance coming out of CDC for that, but this is going to actually play out like so much of the epidemic, the pandemic at the state and even municipal um, health departments. Have I got that right? And you also said the pharmaceutical companies will have a role to play. Is that where you see sort of the point of the spear, if you will, of, of actually applying the lessons that you're learning in your working group? And Monica can speak to this as well, but, um, you know, like you said, ideally this would be coming from a federal level, that there would be some very clear-cut unified messaging, um, and we haven't seen that. So I think the, the point of the sphere now, it, it has to be at state and local levels, um, is really where it's at. And, and there can be multiple players involved, um, but but for some of these, these messages, and especially where they need to be nuanced for more local populations, once again, state and local levels are, are really where they're going to be. That doesn't preclude national messaging campaigns. Right. Um, when, when Steph Curry had Tony Fauci on, on his podcast, for example, that was a, a great way to, to reach a population that maybe hadn't been paying attention to COVID-19 up to that point. So there, there are going to be all types of things, but I think that the point of the sphere and the great effort here, it's going to have to be at state and local levels. So we're almost up on time. I want to get um, one more question if I can in to, to both of you, if you don't mind. And Monica, let me ask you first. Um, there's a term I've seen used in the last week, vaccine nationalism. So we've been talking about this predominantly today in our discussion as a U.S. Uh, in terms of vaccines and the concerns in the United States about vaccine in different groups in the U.S. Um, and President Trump has said he wants to go it alone. He wants an American vaccine, although early in the pandemic he wanted to purchase uh, German vaccine. I mean, this gets very complicated. And of course, the pandemic itself, by definition, crosses national boundaries. What are your concerns? You know, are, are we going to have a, a typical sort of global north, global south kind of issue here where wealthy countries are going to get this first and others are going to come along behind? What are your concerns about waving the U.S. flag with the vaccine behind it? I mean, can you say it should be a whole nother episode of COVID calls, but can you at least give us some sure. headlines here? Sure. But uh, yeah, the headline is this, it is a pandemic. So this is a global problem. And even the, the well-being of Amer um, Americans living in American soil uh, is going to be contingent on how things are being managed um, around the rest of the globe. And so the, the, the me first, um, I'm going to get mine uh, attitude is ultimately going to boomerang. Uh, and so uh, people really do need to uh, grasp that this is a, a global communal problem and uh, how we conduct ourselves as a nation um, and how we treat other nations and communities around the globe is going, is, is going to affect us it is in our self-interest ultimately to make sure that the worst off are treated uh, uh, equitably if, uh, um, if, and also prioritized, quite frankly, in, in my mind. Um, and the vaccine nationalism piece, I consider to be a cruel form of hoarding by privileged classes. Uh, uh, in this case, we're talking about um, um, uh, national actors. So I consider it uh, uh, a me first form of political, uh, you know, politically based hoarding. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. Powerfully stated. Emily, a final word to you on that point or anything else that you want to draw this all together? Just picking up where, where Monica left off, I mean, this is a situation that we are 
literally all in together. Um, and, and what happens to, to each of us individually, it, it has a collective effect. Um, and, and that's true for, for in the country and across the world. So I think that, that we need to be as, as a whole, um, as, as a country, as individuals, we need to start thinking, you know, in, in terms of how this is not just impacting me, um, but how this is impacting all of us, because the, the solutions that we're talking about, it, it involves everyone or at least most people being on board with, with the solutions, just like, you know, wearing masks, social distancing to try and flatten out the spread, um, vaccinating, accepting vaccinations for yourself, um, you know, giving people and making sure that, that those who might not have the same resources of, as you do have access to, to the vaccines and, and to the care that they need. Um, you know, I think perhaps 50 years in the, uh, from now, uh, we might look back and, and judge ourselves. Did we do a good job, you mm. know, in, in terms of those particular things or, or did we not? Um, and, and, and so I just think that, you know, once again, we, even though we're thinking about this in terms of what federal agencies or governments can do, that it ultimately, there are things that we as individuals can do as well. So we all need to take responsibility and to, to advocate for our leaders in, in whatever capacity they're in to take that responsibility as well. You've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking with historians Andy Horowitz and Jacob Remus about their disaster studies and putting the context of history in play when we talk about COVID-19. And I want to thank Monica Shockspana and Emily Brunson for a wide-ranging conversation and really um, a lot of information. Good luck with your with your project, and I think hopefully you realize now you must be compelled to return and talk again uh, as we get a little bit closer to rolling out a vaccine, whenever that is. Thank you both. Our pleasure. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.